Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 3. And if you're using one of the black Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, you'll find our passage on page 528, 528. So Proverbs chapter 3. And uh, we've been in a series this summer in the book of Proverbs, and we'll be continuing that this morning. So I'll begin reading for us in verse 1, and I'm actually going to read the chapter in its entirety, okay? So Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that even as this passage declares, that we would consider this word that we are about to look at better than silver, more profitable than gold, more precious than jewels. Father, may we have some sense of the riches that lie before us. And Father, we pray that we would embrace them with all our hearts and that we would be changed for your glory. 
And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, in our series in the book of Proverbs, we have considered the foundation for wisdom. We've considered the pursuit of wisdom. And now this morning, as we move into chapter 3, we're going to look at the relationship between trust and wisdom. As I just read through chapter 3 of the book of Proverbs, you might have noticed that there's a number of themes that emerge in chapter 3. Actually, many of them we've already seen in the book of Proverbs. But in particular, this theme of the relationship between trust and wisdom is highlighted here in chapter 3, so that actually many commentators say that this is the key to understanding chapter 3. And so that'll be the focus of our time this morning. The relationship, the critical relationship between trust and wisdom. Now, as we consider this, I want us to consider it in four parts. And if you're taking notes this morning, if you'd like to kind of know the structure of where we're headed, this will be our outline this morning. So, first of all, we'll see that wisdom trusts in God. Secondly, we will see that wisdom does not trust in self. Third, wisdom is the way of life. And then fourth, we'll look at two brief examples. So wisdom trusts in God, wisdom does not trust in self, wisdom is the way of life, and then two examples. So first of all, we see from our passage that wisdom trusts in God. Notice there in verse 5, and this is really the heart of, uh, of chapter 3. This is a father speaking to his son, right? We've made that point a number of times in Proverbs. The whole book is written at, from a father's perspective in, in trusting wisdom to his son. And he says there in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then in verse 6, he says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And then again in verse 7, he says, fear the Lord. So the father is speaking to his son and he says, this is how the son is to relate to God. He is to trust him. He is to fear him. He is to acknowledge him. And one of the things we want to notice right off the bat here is that this idea of wisdom is deeply personal and deeply relational. It has everything to do with how the Son will relate to God the person, will relate to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Okay? So many people actually assume, when you think about wisdom, many people assume that if, if they were just able to master kind of the natural laws of the universe... Or they were able to really get down pat uh, seven effective ways to have a successful life. Or if they were able to master some uh, code of ethics or conduct, then they would truly be wise. But what we see from the book of Proverbs is that wisdom, according to the Bible, is not fundamentally trust in some abstract principles or ideas. But fundamentally, biblical wisdom is trust in a person, trust in the God of the Bible. In fact, this is where the Father begins when the book of Proverbs opens up in chapter 1, right out of the gate, right? As the Father is speaking to His Son about wisdom, He says in chapter 1, verse 7, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." So the Father says, if you, just, if you want to get on the path of wisdom, just to get on the path of wisdom, it has everything to do with how you relate to God. Being in right relationship with God, fearing God. And we said as we looked at chapter 1 that the idea of fear is this idea of having a reverential, an affectionate reverence or an affectionate awe before God. As we come to chapter 3 and the Father is talking about this idea of trusting the Lord, we realize that there is a close relationship between fearing God and trusting God. And in fact, those who fear God will trust God. 
If you fear God in the biblical sense of fearing God, let me give you an illustration. Some of you might know the story of Jesus calming the storm. It's recorded in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, Jesus is in a boat, and a storm comes, and, uh, the sto- and the boat's being tossed to and fro, and the disciples are on the boat. The disciples are fearing for their lives. They, they can't get a, a hold of the boat, and they're, they're, they're afraid that this is going to be the end of them. And so uh, Jesus is, has fallen asleep, and so they wake Jesus up, and they say, Jesus, aren't you going to do something about this? And Jesus, he, he steps out, and he speaks to the storm. He says, peace, be still. And with just those words, the storm dies down and everything is calm. And then we read in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, this is the response of the disciples. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? You see, fear led to trust. On the one hand, the the extraordinary power of Jesus, they would say, look, this guy speaks and nature obeys. That makes me want to tremble in my boots. I can trust this guy. If I'm in a storm, I want to be with him. Right? Fear leads to trust. A biblical fear leads to trust. And the more we are in awe of God and His creative power and His glory and the lavishness of His grace and beauty, the more we will come to trust Him, to rest in Him, to lean upon Him. So wisdom trusts in God. But we also see in our passage this morning that wisdom does not trust in self. This is the the, the flip side of it, okay? So wisdom does not trust in self. You see this in verse 5. The author says, Do not lean on your own understanding. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Flip side of that, do not lean on your own understanding. Or verse 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Now this is important to point out because in our own age, we know that the self, the self-actualization, has been exalted to the greatest virtue. So that self has been declared and exalted the, uh, to the place of the ultimate standard for truth. So the individual is the ultimate arbiter who determines what is right or what is wrong, what is good or what is evil. In fact, many believe that as you come to this subject of wisdom, that the essence of wisdom is confidence in self. According to modern standards, wisdom is not submitting ourselves to God and embracing His reality, but rather wisdom is declaring ourselves to be God and seeking to create our own reality. In fact, even if you read like a lot of the self-help books that are out there, and, and, and there are good things in some of that stuff, but, but if you read some of the books that are out there, some of the self-help books that are out there, they will go as far to say that we can create our own reality. That if you just believe in yourself enough and you visualize what you want and you speak it, then you can make it come into existence. Declaring ourselves to be gods, to be able to make our own reality. Proverbs actually says, in contrast, that this is the height of folly. And there are many examples of confident fools in the Scripture. In fact, this is the whole point of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a book about how Israel continues to turn away from God and, 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 and not follow His commands. They are, they, they are rejecting God. And as a result, 
They continue to decline into more corruption, into more depravity, into more brokenness, into more pain. And you see this downward cycle in the book of Judges. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And there's refrain in the book of Judges. There was no, it's repeated over and over again. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were wise according to themselves. Or Isaiah the prophet when he's speaking to the nation of Israel and they, he speaks to them about their wickedness and the judgment that's going to come upon them because of their wickedness. He says to them in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 21, Woe, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You see, essentially what they are saying is we don't need God. We don't need a word from God. We've got this figured out ourselves. We can handle it quite nicely, thank you. The author of Hebrews is speaking to his son, and he says, Son, do not take that path. That is the height of folly. Proverbs says that this inflated self-confidence, this exaggerated self-reliance is the essence of foolishness. And in contrast, wisdom is knowing that we don't know, but that God knows everything and casting ourselves upon Him. In fact, there's this close relationship here in verse 5 between this idea of trust and lean. You see there, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You see the relationship between these two ideas. What we trust, we will lean into. If we trust something, we'll put our weight into it. My wife actually recently, I had a birthday and uh, part of the celebration is we went to the new trampoline park in town. I don't know how many of y'all have been to it, um, but it, it was a lot of fun. But the whole floor is essentially different trampolines, right? And uh, we had never done this before. And so, you know, when you first go out there, you're kind of testing it out. You just kind of put one foot out there, you know, and just feel it a little bit. It's almost like getting in a pool, you know, and then you put like two feet on it. And then you just kind of bounce slightly, you know, you want to make sure you don't fall through the bottom or it doesn't launch you through the ceiling or something, you know, you're just kind of getting a feel for it. But then you're there for about an hour and the more you're there, the more comfortable you get with it. And by the end, you know, you're just throwing yourself into it and seeing how far you can jump and how high you can go. And it's similar in terms of our relationship with God. The increase, the more we come to know God, and His power, and His beauty, and His glory, and His grace, the more we will be inclined to lean into Him, to throw the weight of our lives into Him, and to trust Him with everything, with all our hearts, in all our ways, we will acknowledge Him. This, the author of of Proverbs says, is the essence of wisdom. To not trust in yourself, but to trust in God. Now, Third, notice that wisdom is the way of life. So wisdom is trusting in God. Wisdom is not trusting in self. And then third, wisdom is the way of life. We see this in verse 8. He goes on to write, It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, I just highlighted, I just pointed out that one verse to make this point, that wisdom is the way of life. Wisdom is the way of blessing. But really, if you look at verses 1 through 12, all of these verses are structured in a pattern in order to highlight this truth. Let me show you the pattern that the author of Hebrews uses here in these 12 verses. The pattern is this. First of all, he begins by giving a command regarding wisdom. 
a command or an imperative. And then every command is followed by a promise. And actually, it follows the verses. So in the odd verses, we have the commands or the imperatives to pursue wisdom. And in the even verses, we have the promises. Notice this. Look, in verse 1, here's the command. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Verse 2, the promise. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Verse 3, the command. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Uh, The promise, verse 8, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Verse 5, the command, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. The second part of verse uh, 6 is the promise, and He will make straight your paths. Verse 7, the command, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Verse 8, the promise, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Verse 9, the command, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Verse 10, the promise, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Verse 11, the command, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The promise in verse 12, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So so do we get the point over and over again? Here's the idea. Pursue wisdom, and wisdom will lead to life. Wisdom will lead to blessing. Wisdom will lead to healing. We know that on the opposite side of that, sin, which is foolishness, leads to brokenness. It leads to pain. It leads to division. It leads to injustice. It leads to war. It leads to conflict. And so the author of Proverbs is saying, look, this is the path of sin. This is the path of foolishness. It'll it'll take you towards destruction and death. But on the opposite side, if you yield yourself to the creator of the universe and you submit yourself to his rule and reign and you embrace his laws and his promises, then then you will begin to experience healing. Then you will begin to experience life. Then you will begin to be made new and beautiful and be made all that God has created you to be. This is the way of life. And then, and this leads to our fourth point, then the author of Proverbs gives two practical examples to flesh out this principle for his son. Okay? So, so, so far, and I don't know how much time we've been going now, but so far what we've done is laid out the principle of trust and wisdom, right? So trust in the Lord, don't trust in yourself, this is the path of wisdom. That's the principle that the Father has laid out. Now he takes two specific areas of life and he applies that principle. The first area of life is in the area of wealth, and the second is in the area of discipline, Okay? So let's look at each one of these. The first is wisdom and wealth. So look there in verses 9 to 10. He says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, I think we all understand what wealth is uh, when it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. But some of us may be wondering, what are first fruits? So honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Well, this idea of first fruits is a prevalent theme in the Old Testament. Um, The idea here is that God's people should bring to God what is their best, what is their first, 
the first of what they receive, not the leftovers. And this would include in the Old Testament, it would include the first fruits of their crops, the first fruits of their animals, the first fruits of their money. And notice the promise that comes as a result. If they honor God with their wealth, if they honor God with what God has given to them, then, verse 10, your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will be bursting with wine. And this is not the only place in Scripture where a promise like this is made. We could look at New Testament examples as well, but one particular example, another example in the Old Testament, is in Malachi chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. The prophet Malachi is speaking to the people of Israel, and he says, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing God, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now let me just say, and we we have to say this in our own day and culture, that this does not mean that if we give to the Lord or to support the Lord's work, that we are necessarily going to become filthy rich, okay? Unlike uh, many people on TV who just want your money, right, and put things out like that. Nor does this mean that this should be the ultimate motive for which we give. But it does mean, and this is very clear in Scripture, that God honors those who honor Him with their wealth. And that God, when we give to Him, that He provides and that He meets our needs and that He even blesses and loves to do so in any number of different ways. Now, let me just say, this is counterintuitive. When you read this at first, it doesn't make sense. Give, be generous, and you will have more. That doesn't make sense, does it? Not on the face of things. I can't imagine that there are many financial investors that if you were to go to them and you were to say, okay, I've got this sum of money and I want you to make me some money. Okay, so I'm going to hand this money over to you and you can charge me a little bit of a fee and I want you to make me some money. I can't imagine that their first, many of them, their first piece of advice would be, okay, the first thing I want you to do is take the first of what you've got, the best of what you've got, the first of what you're receiving every week or every month or whatever it is, and give 10% of that away. I, I mean, really give it away. Don't, don't spend it to pay down the mortgage. Don't spend it in uh, investing in the stock market. Don't spend it in trying to get out of debt. I mean, give it away. Give it away to a gospel ministry, and let's see what happens. That's why the Father says, trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. It's counterintuitive. It's not natural to us. But this is the way God has ordered His universe. This is the way God operates. And so will we trust ourselves or will we trust God? Generosity is ultimately a matter of trust and faith. And wisdom takes God at His word. Wisdom trusts that God can do more with my 90% or 80% or 70% than I could ever do with my 100%. The second example is wisdom and discipline. Look there in verses 11 and 12. The father says to his son, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. 
Now, what is the Lord's discipline? What is the Lord's reproof? Uh, there's a lot of different things I think we could say about this. There's a lot of different aspects, I believe, that would come under this umbrella of the Lord's discipline. But let me just mention a few things to give us a sense of what we're talking about here. I think one thing we could say is that the Lord's discipline is often expressed in His instruction. And this is not necessarily because we've done something wrong. It's not as though He's punishing us. I, I remember in high school, I uh, played basketball, and one of the things that the coaches would have us do is they would have us line up on the baseline, and uh, they'd have us run suicides. Some of y'all may know what those are. You run to the foul line and back. You run to the half court and back. You run to the other foul line and back. You run to the other baseline and back. Sounds like a lot of fun, right? And you're supposed to be sprinting the whole time. And uh, it's not something that you enjoy, okay? If you do enjoy it, there might be something wrong with you. But it's not typically something that players enjoy doing. And, And... the coach would have you do it, not necessarily because you'd done something wrong. Now, sometimes it was because you'd done something wrong, but not necessarily. But it was a part of a discipline, a regimen to prepare us for the game, right? And in a similar way, God's instructions and, and, and the discipline that God calls us to in our Christian's life is, is not necessarily because we've done something wrong or He's doing it to punish us, but He's doing it to prepare us so that we might grow in Christ's likeness and we might be prepared for the battle that we will be engaged in. Another aspect of the Lord's discipline is the natural consequences that we experience as a result of our sin. This is a a dominant theme in the book of Proverbs, that sin leads to negative consequences. So if you're dishonest with your employer, there's a good chance that you may lose your job. If you gossip and slander others, there's a good chance that you may lose the trust of your friends. If you drive recklessly or under the influence of alcohol, there's a good chance that you might lose your license. And so sometimes God allows us to experience the natural consequences of our sin in order to teach us, in order to correct us as a father would his son or his daughter. Another aspect of the Lord's discipline, not only instruction, not only the natural consequences of our sin, but another aspect of the Lord's discipline might be trials and difficulties that come into our lives. Again, it should be noted, this is not necessarily because of any particular sin in our life. We think about Paul, the Apostle Paul, and in the book of Corinthians, he talks about the thorn of the flesh that the Lord had given to him. We don't know exactly what it was. It could have been some physical infirmity. It could have been some particular struggle with sin that he wrestled with. It could have been some hardship that he had to endure on his missionary journeys over and over again. We don't know exactly what it was, but there was this thing in his life that caused him trouble, that caused him pain, that caused him discomfort. And Paul says three times he asked the Lord to remove it from him. And essentially he says the Lord's answer was, No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so the Lord essentially said to Paul, No, I'm I'm not going to take this thing away from you because I love you. I'm going to allow it to persist in your life so that you will see your need for me and you will be increasingly dependent upon me. And as a result, you will experience more of my grace and more of my power in your life. Now listen, going back to the principle that the Father is trying to teach the Son here, right? This again is counterintuitive, isn't it? At first glance, it doesn't make sense. God allows discomfort, pain, hardship into our lives in order that we might experience blessing. And some of you might say, well, if that's the case, I don't really want that kind of blessing. The Father says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. 
In fact, the author of Hebrews picks up these verses, these very verses, and cites them in Hebrews chapter 12. And in so doing, he comes to this conclusion in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. He says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who are trained by it. So again, discipline leads to blessing. Discipline leads to righteousness. Discipline leads to becoming more like Christ and more of all that God has created you to be. And so when discomfort or difficulty or trial comes into our lives, how will we respond? Will we be bitter and resentful and withdraw from God? Or will we yield ourselves and draw near to God, trusting God's Word, that the discomfort we are experiencing in our lives is in no way a testimony to the fact that God does not love us, but to the contrary, that God does love us and is committed to our good, and He has good things for us, even in our pain and inconveniences and difficulties. This is the faith of the psalmist in Psalm 119, 71. Listen to this. I mean, this is wisdom on display. Nobody talks like this unless they're trusting God and not leaning on their own understanding. Psalm 119, verse 71, the psalmist says, It is good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Nobody talks like that. It was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Nobody talks like that unless... They are trusting God and not leaning on their own understanding. As we think about this reality, we are reminded that Jesus was the ultimate wise man. I mean, think about it. Even on this point, Jesus suffered terribly, right? Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was betrayed by his friends. Jesus was falsely accused. Jesus was condemned and mocked and humiliated and brutally and unjustly murdered. It seemed like everything had gone wrong in Jesus' life. Jesus was, in a sinful, fleshly way, tempted to lean on his own understanding, to be wise in his own eyes. You remember before Jesus began his public ministry, Satan tempted him in the wilderness. And essentially, Satan tempted Jesus by saying, Look, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't deserve that. Why in the world would you do that? Right now, if you bow to me, you won't have to do any of that, and I will give you every kingdom in the world. And the temptation persisted, right? So when Jesus was on the cross and when he was dying in agony, we know that the crowds cried out to him and said, Jesus, you said you were the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, come down off the cross, save yourself. Is this what a royal Messiah looks like? Jesus, you're pathetic. And how did Jesus respond? The Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus, this is speaking specifically in terms of His sufferings on the cross, Jesus entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. That's wisdom, right? 
Despite everything he sees, despite everything he's experiencing, he's not wise in his own eyes. He's trusting his father. He's entrusting himself to his father over and over and over again that his father knows what is right, that his father is doing what is right, that he can trust his father. And Jesus was ultimately vindicated. He was vindicated by his resurrection from the dead as the resurrection was a divine stamp on Jesus' life saying, yes, I am pleased with his work. I am pleased with his life. This is my son. And not only that, but Jesus attained the reward for which he was after. A people for himself. A people washed and cleansed by his blood. A radiant bride from every tribe and tongue and language and nation who would be secure in his love and in his grace forever. This is true wisdom. He entrusted himself to God. And listen, who are these people that he has won for himself? Who, who is this radiant bride? And this is so important. At the essence of who they are, they are a people who trust in him. Right? They are a people who will not, do not trust in their own understanding, but have committed themselves to trusting in him. So they have stopped following their natural fallen inclination to try to prove themselves before God, to try to make themselves right before God, to try to prove that they're acceptable before God, or they're so righteous that God has to accept them. They have stopped trusting in themselves, and they have cast their trust upon Christ. That only by His grace and only by His mercy and only by His death and only by His resurrection from the dead can they be made right before God. And that it is more than enough and now they are absolutely secure in His love. There are people who refuse to trust in themselves but trust in Him. They are a people as well who trust in the words of Jesus, right? Not only in the work of Jesus and what He did at the cross, but the words of Jesus. They trust in the reality that death leads to life. Not because that seems natural, that's counterintuitive, right? But because that's what Jesus has told us. That if you lose your life, you'll save it. That to take up your cross and follow Jesus to embrace the way of death is to lead to resurrection. And so they have yielded any rights to be their own God and submitted themselves to King Jesus and follow Him. In fact, as we have folks come this morning to be baptized, we have three that are coming to be baptized. This is one of the things they are going to be saying in their baptism. His baptism symbolizes this reality, to be buried with Him in death, to be raised to walk in newness of life. That in Jesus, death leads to life. Death leads to resurrection. It's counterintuitive. We trust in the Lord and not our own understanding. This, my friends, is the way to wisdom. It begins by trusting Jesus with your eternal soul and then allowing that trust to filter out into every aspect of your life. Let's pray that by God's grace we would be such a people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and for your grace. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Lord, we do pray that we would be a people who cast ourselves upon you and your word totally and completely, that we would trust you with all our hearts. And as a result, we would know the blessing and life that wisdom brings. 
And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.